And now I'll introduce our head table, our, our guest, special guest. George Kohan has said that growing up on the south side of Chicago, he learned to get along with different kinds of people. That by working at his grandfather's plumbing store as a kid, he learned how to work and save money to buy something he wanted. Years later, both experiences turned out to be invaluable. As a young lawyer in the 1960s, George was representing a client who was trying to get the rights to McDonald's Hawaii franchise. The legendary Roy, Ray Kroc countered by offering up Eastern Canada, which he said was open. George's client wasn't interested, so Kroc offered it to him instead. When George said he had no money, Mr. Kroc told him to go out, borrow some, and figure out the rest. He did. <laughs> Today, McDonald's Canada has over 1,400 restaurants and annual sales that exceed $3 billion. At the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, George had the chance to meet some delegates from the then-Soviet Union. He took them to McDonald's and asked if they thought it would work in their country. They did. And just 14 years and a regime change later, the first McDonald's opened up in Russia. Today, there are 229 McDonald's there, and Moscow is home to the world's busiest. George Kohan's story is a testament that what can be achieved with perseverance, tenacity, and the conviction that comes from knowing you're on life's right path. Talking with him today about his extraordinary life and accomplishments is Amanda Lang, Senior Business Correspondent for the CBC. Please welcome Amanda and the founder of, of McDonald's Canada and McDonald's Russia, George Kohan, to the stadium. To the stadium. for that. I am a, um, a confessed McDonald's fan, so I think I need to get my bias on the table here because every now and then I interview Enjoy somebody from McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> this will go to good use. Um, and so, yes, I'm a Big Mac eater. And actually, I believe you can divide the world into right, Coke or Pepsi, John or Paul. To me, it's McDonald's or Wendy's. So, show of hands, McDonald's. <laughs> Those of you wearing the pins don't count. <laughs> this, I've talked to George before, and I'm excited to do this because uh, he's a wonderful raconteur. He's done amazing things in his life. He actually continues to push the envelope on, uh, on business and change and philanthropy. Uh, but I want to start with Russia. And before we talk uh, to, to George, we've actually got a video. It's extraordinary to think that it was 20 years ago. Uh, that this first McDonald's open, and there's a short video that I'll ask you to turn your attention to as we get the conversation underway. Twenty years ago, democracy first appeared in Russia. Twenty years ago, McDonald's first appeared in Russia. A pure coincidence? Maybe yes, maybe not. Since then, a whole generation of Russians have grown up and passed under the golden arches of McDonald's. The first McDonald's in Russia opened its doors in Moscow on Pushkin Square on January 31, 1990. And this was much more than the opening of a restaurant. It symbolized the beginning of a new era for Russia. On that day, over 30,000 people came here. Look at their faces. Clearly to them, 
this was much more than a simple restaurant opening. Over the past 20 years, some 130 million people have visited McDonald's on Pushkin Square. That's as if all of France did it twice, or nearly the entire population of Russia. The better your ingredients, the better your final product. McDonald's is uncompromising where the quality of its product is concerned. 20 years ago, with this in mind, the company decided to build the Mac Complex. This unique food processing and distribution center guarantees both the high quality and safety of what the client has served. For 20 years, the company has steadily built and developed a local supply chain. McDonald prides itself on its long-standing cooperation with Russia's best suppliers. Help yourself by helping your partners. That's the view the company is faithful to. As of today, 80% of the products used by McDonald's restaurants in Russia come from 130 local suppliers who in turn account for a workforce of 100,000 employees. McDonald's in Russia is a big giver. Over 330 million rubles in charitable donations. In 1995, the company established the Ronald McDonald House Charities. RMHC takes special pride in its Ronald McDonald Sports and Health Center. Every week, it opens its doors to 400 physically and mentally challenged children. The RMHC has opened 10 family rooms in hospitals across Russia for parents of children in need of long-term hospitalization. And thanks to that, some 34,000 children are not separated from their moms and dads, and though far from home, feel almost at home. Over the past two decades, McDonald's in Russia has amassed quite a collection of awards, among which Company of the Year, Russian Business Elite, thank you letters from the President of the Russian Federation and the State Duma, Hewitt's Best Employer Study Award, Brand of the Year Effie Award, and many, many others. Today, the McDonald's chain is number one in Russia among quick-service restaurants. We are profoundly grateful to the founding fathers of the company in Russia, as well as to those who worked day in, day out for its future. So when you see those lines in Pushkin Square, when you see the video that takes you back there, how do you feel now? Well, it's a great feeling. I mean, um, you got to realize it's not any one person who brings McDonald's to Russia. It's a combination of a lot of different teams of people. But you see those lines, and the lines are continual. They're ongoing. You know, that restaurant is still the busiest McDonald's in the world. We're in 118 countries. We've got over 30,000 restaurants. We serve 60 million people every day in McDonald's. And that one restaurant is number one in the world to this day. You were part of uh, the McDonald's empire in 1976. You were the Canadian outpost of this global business. Why were you the one that took McDonald's to Russia? Because really, I mean, you could say there was a team, George, but you were the one who sort of pursued it, had the idea, made it happen. Why you? We, we had a, a bus. You might have heard this story, Mr. Commissioner, and Mom, you might have heard this story before. <clears throat> We had a, uh, and, and McDonald's folks, you might have heard it too. <laughs> we, we had a Big Mac coach, and um, we used it to raise money for charity. And the government of Canada called and said, um, the Olympics are in Montreal. It's 76. The Soviet delegation's coming over because they're going to host the 1980 games. 
and can we borrow the bus? And I said, well, sure. So uh, Susie I, uh, Commissioner Mark, who was a little kid, and Craig are at the Olympics, and we see the bus, and I said, let's go meet the, the Russians. I didn't know any Russians, and we walk up, and I've got a pair of jeans and a T-shirt on, and I've just about talked my way through. It's the RCMP, it's the KGB, it's everyone. And, you know, I've got my business cards I'm handing out to everyone that like that. And somebody walks up in a three-piece suit with a clipboard. And he says, I'm from the Canadian government. These are important people. You have to go through the protocol department of external affairs to talk to them. And I said, the protocol is I own the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's how this whole thing started. That's how it started. Um, I, they invited us out for dinner. I said, well, let's go out and have a snack first. Went to a McDonald's, which had tons of lines, because it was the Olympics. Um, and I saw the way they looked at the McDonald's food, and I said, do you think we'd do well in your country? And they said, yes. I said, well, great, invite us over. And that's how it all started. There was no Machiavellian scheme. It just was a chance meeting. That was 1976. That was 34 years ago. And we're celebrating the 20th anniversary. So that 14-year gap. Yes. Took a little bit of time. <laughs> Took a little bit of time. Well, well, fortunately, McDonald's of Canada was in great shape. Or I wouldn't have, you know, you got to call headquarters, so to speak, and talk to a guy named Fred Turner and say, Fred, I had this chance meeting with the, with the Soviets. Uh, they invited us over. Can we go for it? Now, if he says no, that's the end of the project. Fortunately, he said yes. And now you wade into that country in the height of the Cold War. I mean, it's, it's the height of the Cold War. It's, um, it's the evil empire. It's, um, you know, President Reagan squaring off, uh, saying, you know, the, this is the evil empire. It's uh, Karl Marx in one quarter against Adam Smith in the other. And you wait in in the height of that, and you can imagine why it took a few years to get it done. We had to break through some really ideological changes. So what was <clears throat> most striking to you about in that period? Were there, were there real breakthrough moments when you could see this was actually going to happen? I mean, was it, was it when Gorbachev was... Way before. Way before. Yeah, way before. Um, there were moments when you... I mean, you start in 76. I remember in 79, we thought we had a deal to serve the 1980 Olympics to bring in some mobile McDonald's. And they said, wait in your hotel room. We'll give you a call. We'll call you at 10 in the morning. They called at 10 in the morning. They said, we'll call you 2 in the afternoon. They called at 2 in the afternoon. We'll call you 10 the next morning. This went on for 17 days, waiting in a hotel room, thinking, we're going to get a deal. We're not going to. And then the deal was called off. But fortunately, there was a man who worked in Ottawa who was the Soviet ambassador to Canada, Alexander Yakolev. And he and I became very good friends. And um, he was punished for saying something that he shouldn't have said. And the punishment was, you're going to become the Soviet ambassador to Ottawa. That's your, that's your, that's your punishment, you, or unless you want to go to Siberia. So he, I don't know which choice he, was the best one. But in any event, <laughs> jokingly, of course, he, he ends up going to Ottawa. And he and I became very good friends. And when this, you know, this ordeal took place, where now it's 76 to 79, and millions of dollars of money spent, he said, don't worry, the ideology will change. Hang in, George, don't give up. And that was a breakthrough way before Gorbachev, way before. The, the symbol of McDonald's 
um, it's funny because I was just recently in Dubai and to see uh, Arabic writing on, a, on the golden arches is quite a, it's an interesting experience. It's a good, it's a good experience uh, for anybody who's kind of lived through the last few years and the complex relationship we have with the Middle East. Um, it's been a symbol of American expansionism and globalism and capitalism and all kinds of isms that people don't like. Was it that in Russia? Was there an element of people saying, no, no, America's trying to encroach here? Well, no. Um, it's interesting. They could never figure out why the Canadian company was the ones that came to them instead of the American company. And, and once I was asked by someone very high up in government, and I told him the bus story. He said, well, that makes sense. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's how it started. I don't think there was that thought. At least I never encountered it. I think the 14-year the, the odyssey, if you will, there were levels of pessimism. And the first one was, you won't cut a deal. You'll never cut a deal. These are commies. They're not going to deal with you. You're a capitalist. I would start every meeting by saying, I'm a capitalist. I believe in free enterprise. Profit is not a dirty word. You know, I wasn't going to sacrifice my principles to get in there. And so I start every meeting by saying that. And they said, you'd never cut a deal. Well, you cut the deal. And the next one was, you won't get good employees. They don't know how to serve people. They don't have a culture similar to the culture that McDonald's needs to say, thank you, please come again. Um, we take out one ad in one newspaper one day, and we get 28,000 written responses, 28,000 to one ad. We hire 680 people. Many of them are still with us. Uh, a good number of them are, you know, 20 years later still working for us in, in elevated positions. Um, you never build good buildings. We've got great buildings there. You never uh, solve the supply chain. You never be able to, uh, to get the right supplies. As the video said, 80% of the product line now comes from within the former Soviet Union. And the ripple effect of that is that you employ 100,000 people in that network. And in McDonald's, we employ 25,000 people. So now you've got 125,000 people employed there, which is just wonderful which is great. And the last one is, well, you won't make money. You won't make profit. Or when you leave, it, you'll go back to Canada and we won't be able to run it. Well, that's not true. I mean, it's just not true. We've got, uh, I think it said 229. The number's 249. <clears throat> probably over 250 by now. And if you looked at a per-restaurant basis, first of all, Canada is doing super. Canada is doing great. And the management team that's here from Canada, I want to thank you. I'm a dollar a year man, and if you guys could just, and gals could figure out how to get me my dollar, that'd be really appreciated, okay? So, so if, you, if you look at McDonald's worldwide, and we just had a big convention in Orlando, Florida. We're, we're in 118 countries. You know, um, if you took the highest per restaurant average in the world, look at each restaurant and say, who has the most customers coming in? and who has the biggest sales, Russia's number one by far. And it's the tip of the iceberg. It's just the beginning. It's incredible. It's just the beginning. And what I love about it is what started as a Canadian dream is a great Russian success story. That's the way it should be. That's the way business should be. Because you help entre entrepreneurs there realize their dreams. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I'm sure a lot of people that, uh, that work for us have gone out to do other things. I'm sure there's been a... You know what's funny? At the 20th anniversary celebration... I sort of thought, well, it'll be another celebration. We have another party. We'll, we'll get nice watches. I got this beautiful watch. 
which Sue says, you couldn't wear this watch to an event like this. I said, you, you bet I'm going to wear it. I love it. Um, and so the media, the, the excitement of the media after 20 years was incredible, Amanda. I don't know how many cameras. Johnny, you were there. There are 20, 25 cameras there. There are reporters from all over. I got the media book they put together. It's, it's this thick. Uh, we go back to, to a house in Florida, and someone had just come back from Shanghai, China, and said, God, I opened up the English paper in Shanghai, and I saw your 20th anniversary celebration. So the excitement level of McDonald's to this day continues. And what's sort of interesting, Amanda, um, is there's something that's been built into the equation that I didn't see in the early days. And, and it's like this, BBC will be interviewing me, which this actually happened. All of this actually happened. It's not that I'm telling the truth on this one story. This is the <laughs> BBC is interviewing me. They, they, they use a line like, do you take credit for the Berlin Wall coming down? Well, no, but who, who in the world is going to say yes to a, to a question like that? No, we don't take credit for the Berlin Wall coming down. We might have been a factor of change at that point in time. And now the media big time is talking about the effect that we had way back then of coming in. And there's a lot of stuff in, in those clippings that talk about people reflecting about it was a way of going to the West without seeing the West. That's why those hundreds of thousands of people lined up just wanting to get in and wanting to see what it was. One of the decisions you made in Russia, and I think it's true everywhere, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you do you supply locally. As much as you can, you source. That must have been difficult. Well, we couldn't source a lot initially. We, uh, we built a huge complex, and the majority of the product came from, without, from outside of the former Soviet Union. And then you start to get a supplier from Canada who might uh, be a potato supplier. Maybe it's a McCain's who says, well, we'll give you a hand, and they go in and try to help a local farmer. You get a, a meat supplier from Germany, and they go in and try to help a local person. So all of a sudden, over time, 80% of the product comes from within. And Gorbachev loved that to him. That was nearly, I think, as important as the, the selling of product to the people. The fact that we went into the supply chain of Russia and made some changes. We, uh, we have a, a guy who has a company called Bella Dacha. They, they're a lettuce supplier. And, and, you know, he needed some money for a piece of equipment. So you give him the money, and he'll pay back when he can. And he paid us back. And all of a sudden, he becomes a huge supplier, and he becomes minister of agriculture for the Russian Federation. And they say, well, how are you equipped to be the minister of all of Russia of agriculture? He said, I'm a McDonald's supplier. <laughs> Pretty good answer, I thought. And he's, he's been a member of the Duma. So there's a lot of stuff that happens over there that's fun. It's, you mentioned uh, it's 249. It might be 250 by now. What's the rate of expansion in Russia? Is it similar to elsewhere? Well, it's, it's interesting, and, and you, it's hard to explain to a non-McDonald's group. You know, if, you, if you're running a corporation globally that's in over 100 countries, you sort of look around and say, where should we put some money in the markets that are really doing well? Hey, McDonald's Canada, you're doing great. We're going to go out there, and we're going to refurbish and rebuild and re-image, you know, 1,400 restaurants in a couple of years and open a whole bunch more. In Europe, Russia is the number one growth market for McDonald's in all of Europe. On a base of 250 this year, we're going to open 45 restaurants. So now you're at 300. 
The next year you open another 45 or 50. So you're up to you know, 500 before you know it. And then the question is, well, how many can you open? Well, there are 150 million people in Russia. So how many can you open? I mean, you know, there's what, 32 million people in Canada, and we got 1,400 restaurants and still growing. So there'd be thousands and thousands of restaurants. I had lunch with, I was interviewing George for, I'm going to tell this story, I apologize, uh, a magazine article. And I had lunch in Florida with George and Susan. And of course, we went to the McDonald's. And when lunch was over, he took my ketchup off my tray that I hadn't opened and went to take it back to the, and as he went, he said, it's a penny business. And I thought then, what I'm thinking now, which is you have such passion for the, the actual workings of this business. What, is that about McDonald's or is that about George? Well, I think the answer, the honest answer is it's both. It's both. Um, when you get mentored by a guy like Ray Kroc and Fred Turner, who are the legendary guys in McDonald's, and, and Kroc says, have ketchup in your veins. You know, you have ketchup in your veins. That, that sort of happens, but it's not me only, it's the McDonald's team. I mean, people that are sitting around the table in front of me have ketchup in their veins. And um, it, it's sort of fun. It's a fun business. I, I look forward to, you know, we have McCappy Day coming up. Are you working in one of our restaurants, Amanda? I'm not. I wasn't invited. Well, this is a very, well, there's a reason you weren't. There's a reason you weren't invited. I John, will, be, John, I will John, be eating in one of your restaurants. No, 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 so. no. John was, you were kind enough to interview John, the, the, uh, President and CEO of McDonald's of Canada. And um, he was going to invite you on air, but he knew I was going to be talking with you. He said, George, why don't you personally invite Amanda? <laughs> <laughs> so it's an open invitation if you have time to come and help us. Because all that money goes to help kids. And, then, uh, you know, and what's, what's interesting about that day, and I guess I should give you more time to ask me questions. I apologize. But what's interesting about... Well, I really don't apologize. No, I know. <laughs> what's interesting about that day is it started in Canada. And, and we've done it 17 times. We've raised in excess of $28 million for kids. Mostly they're out of McDonald houses. And now it's gone around the world. So McHappy Day is in the McDonald system in the last couple of years. Around the world. So now you're talking classic amounts of money to help kids. Hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's nice. That's very nice. A Canadian idea that's gone globally. Something else that you sort of spearhead. You can take a lot of pride in McHappy Day. Oh, I take First, a tell tell, Does everybody know what McHappy Day is? Yeah, okay. Is there anyone here that doesn't know what McHappy Day is? Yeah. Eat at McDonald's on Wednesday is the key point. Eat at McDonald's and $1 from every Big Mac, every uh, McHappy meal, and every Egg McMuffin, do I have it right? goes to, to help children's charities. In this market, it will go to help the new Ronald McDonald House on McCall, which is under construction, which is over 90 bedrooms. Now, everyone says, wow, it's the biggest house in the world. That's great, but it shows how much help is needed. We turn away more kids who are sick than we can help in the house we have here. That's unacceptable to us. So come on out, McHappy Day, and give us a hand. We need everyone's help on that day. How far back into the culture does that does the philanthropy go? Because it's a it's a sizable part of McDonald's culture today. Well, I I think it starts way back in the beginnings of McDonald's. I think Ray Kroc, the founder, always said we owe a duty to put back to the communities we're in. We owe an absolute duty, and so you know cynics might say, ah, you guys and gals do this to sell more hamburgers. Well, maybe we do sell more hamburgers, but that does not to say that it's not something we should be doing. And so I think it's just part and parcel of what we've always done. And for a businessman who's out, you know, uh, working hard and running a company, 
um, it's nice to know that at the end of the day you're doing something that's helping society. That's very nice to know. Just a reminder that we're welcoming questions from the room. There are cards on your tables. Um, they'll bring them up to me at the front here as we go along here because if George isn't hogging the floor, I will hog the floor. So we do want to hear from you and what you would like to hear from George. Um, we, you mentioned the Canadian business. People will know that on a corporate level, the, the maybe two, three years ago, kind of a rough, was a turnaround period, I guess is what you might say, uh, for McDonald's. What, what did you go through and what do you think you've come out to? Well, I think there are cycles in, in, in businesses. And I think, you know, very candidly, there was a period of time for the Canadian company where you're sort of on a high and then you sort of drop a little and you sort of aren't doing what you should be doing. And fortunately, a couple of years ago, we, we recaptured where we should be. And, and the way you know it is you come out of a convention with, you know, picture Orlando, Florida. Um, it's supposed to be 20,000 people. We ended up with 15 because all of England, Germany, France, Russia couldn't fly out because planes were grounded, as you know. So now you've got 15,000 people in a, in a convention center, and, and you've got red shirts on. The Canadian team has red shirts. And the noise level from Canada, everyone thought there were more Canadians than Americans there. I mean, it was, it was sort of nice. And we Canadians don't gloat about things. I mean, we wouldn't say, did you see the final hockey game in the... Olympics. We're, that's not the kind of things that nice Canadians wouldn't, wouldn't talk about. And, and so uh, the Canadian company is, is passionate, it's driven, and it's in the McDonald's world right at the top where it should be. Right at the top. It's doing a great job. Great job. I and mean, it's great for me as the founder to see it. Because you can imagine when it wasn't there and there were years when it sort of slid a bit, it's not easy to watch that happen. It's great to watch the comeback. It's really great. And do you consider uh, the health questions a challenge for this company that it still needs to address in an ongoing way, or do you think you've met that challenge? I think it's an ongoing challenge. I think every company, no matter what your business is, should do as much as you can to, to help society. And so as health questions become more, more prevalent, but they've always been around, they've always been around, I think McDonald's has responded properly. Um, uh, you want to have a Big Mac, uh, fries, and a chocolate milkshake, which is your favorite, as you said at lunch, or you want to get a, um, a grilled chicken salad and some yogurt and apple slices and whole milk, the choice is yours. But, but you know, there's all kinds of things that happen. You've got to exercise. You've got to do a whole bunch of different things. I have a story that, that I'm going to tell that's a very, I think, cute story. The Canadian Sports Hall of Fame has a dinner at the Royal York, and Cassie Campbell, who's the captain of the women's hockey team, is inducted. And so I was honored to be asked to put the jacket on her. And so you go to the press thing before, and you're down there, and they have a press conference, and then there's about an hour at lull. So I go to get a shoe shine down in the basement of the Royal York, and there's a couple of young women who started a business down there, and they're fun. You get a shoe shine, they chat, chat you up, and I, there's a guy getting a shoe shine. There's one on the other side, and I sit down on this side. And the guy on the other side knows me. We don't talk. We just sort of nod and wave or something. And the girl shining the shoes says to him, what do you do? And he says, well, I work for Health Canada in Ottawa. Then what are you working on? He said, a tax on junk food. <laughs> and the girl says, well, what's junk food? He says, well, you know, I'm Big Mac fries and a Coke. 
Now, at that point in time, he has no idea who he's sitting next to. And she says something like, well, I go to McDonald's all the time, but I exercise, and I, and I, uh, and I do all kinds of different things, and I'm in great shape. Well, but you know Big Mac fries and a Coke, so I think to myself, what do I do with this guy? What do I do with this guy? Do nothing, which is not my instinct, certainly not my instinct. I take a good look at him, he's half my age, but half my size. So, so, so that evened up, and then I thought, no, I have some fun. So I take my card out and I say, well, I, that's interesting, here's my business card. And the guy says, oh, my kids love McDonald's. <laughs> my kids love McDonald's. Well, how many kids do you have? Two, well, here's, okay. Here's one for your wife, here's one for your two kids, but none for you, you turkey, you don't get one. <laughs> and I said, let me, let me take you out for dinner tonight. Let's pretend you and I are going out in Toronto to one of the best restaurants in town. Let me do the ordering for you. I think we'll start with, do you like lobster bisque? I love lobster bisque. Well, let's start with that. You know what? Some foie gras would really be good. Let's have some foie gras before we order the biggest um, filet mignon we can, either with french fries or mashed potatoes and gravy. And as we're drinking our wine as we're doing all this, you know, um, we got to order a souffle because it takes half an hour to get it done. What kind of souffle? Oh, I love chocolate souffles. Okay, so now tell me which meal is the one that is the healthiest for you, the Big Mac fries and the Coke or the one we just ordered at the restaurant? Gee, I never thought of it that way. Well, you should. Okay? Just that simple. It's choices. It's what you do with your life. You know, uh, John is with the company a long time. He's in top shape. I'm with the company a long time. I'm almost in top shape. I could probably lose a pound or two. So Susie, sort of cut back on what you cook at home, okay? <laughs> There seems to, I mean, you introduced a whole bunch of elements, as you said, to, to address kind of the healthier choices. There's lots of choice. But there is still that undercurrent. Uh, I mean, it sometimes feels like we live in a nanny state. Well, it's an undercurrent. I can't use my cell phone in the car anymore. Well, yeah. When are they going to stop me from eating my Big Mac? Oh, that'll never happen. That won't happen. They'll never do anything like that. But, I mean, I've been in the business for over 40 years in McDonald's, and I mean, way back when people would say, well, it can't be 100% pure beef. How can you serve 100% pure beef at the price you're serving at 15 cents, 18 cents back then? Well, it is 100% pure beef. To this day, people will think that in their mind. Okay, but McDonald's is not hiding from anything. We're very transparent. We're very open. And, um, you know, uh, childhood obesity, we're not the problem. We want to be part of the cure. So we're involved in a lot of different things with governments all over the world, a lot of different programs um, that are important programs, I think. And I think it's really important that they're choices. They're choices. I mean, someone says, well, I don't go to McDonald's because of this, that, and the other. Well, do you eat salad? Well, yeah. Well, do you eat grilled chicken? Well, yes, I do. Well, do you like apple slices? Well, yes, I do. Well, do you like low-fat yogurt? I do. Do you like whole milk? I do. Well, we have plenty of food for you. Come on in. Try it. Question from the room about Ontario's decision in 1985 to open those highway service centers to McDonald's. Uh, is that something that goes on around the world? That must have been actually fairly important, meaningful change. Yeah, that, that's put out to tender. Those things are put out to tender and everyone bids. Um, yeah, there, there are a whole bunch in the U.S. and I think there's some in Germany. But it's a tender process. And um, those are some of the highest volume restaurants we have. They're great restaurants. The highway versus the fixed location. Well, they're all great. The highway 400 going up, uh, 401 going across. They're, they're high-volume restaurants. 
I'm watching this photos go by and seeing you with uh, Boris Yeltsin and wondering back to Russia for a minute. Uh, well, I didn't know their photos. If I'm in any, I'm, I have to turn this yeah, way. Yeah, you're there with Boris. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, which, which of those Russian leaders that you worked with did you like the most, did you think was the most talented? Maybe that's not the same question. Well, I, I think it's a good question. I loved Alexander Yakolev. Yakolev, um, who was the Soviet ambassador to Canada, um, was summoned back by Gorbachev. Gorbachev comes to visit here, and he meets Yakolev for the first time. They start talking, and Yakolev says to Gorbachev, we've got to change what's going on in our country. We've got to change it. It's broken. We've got to fix it. So Perestroika and Glasnost came through, I think, Yakolev's head more than anybody. More than anybody. Uh, the New York Times said that Gorbachev is the evangelist of Perestroika and Yakolev's a theologian. So in my mind, uh, Alexander Yakolev is perhaps the brightest, um, the most genuine, the purest of all the Russians that I met. Now, now you meet world leaders. Uh, Gorbachev, I met after we were open, and we had great fun together. You know, you, you go to meet him, and he said, he's a world leader. I mean, history will write hi stories about him 100 years from today better than what they're writing today. Because the world's very different because of Gorbachev. Y Yeltsin is, a, is an interesting guy. I met him through Prime Minister Maroney at a function, and he knows I'm the McDonald's guy, and so we meet, and you're standing there with a the translator, and he expects me to start pitching McDonald's. And my opening line is, I understand you like to play tennis. And he says, I love playing tennis. Do you play tennis? I said, yes, I do. He said, I never lose in tennis. <laughs> I said, I don't work for you. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a lot of fun. He came out, you invite him to an opening, you never know what, whether he's going to show up or not. But he came to an opening, we had a lot of fun with him. A lot of fun with him. What about Putin? What's he like? I don't really know him well. I, uh, I met him. In, met him. I'm at a meeting with the, uh, the mayor of St. Petersburg, and when they say this is the foreign affairs expert back in those days, that was the KGB guy. You know, everyone knew it. You know, I mean, he, foreign affairs, Mr. Putin, Mr. Cohen, how do you do, how do you do? So we never really talked. I mean, maybe a word here and a word there. Um, what do I think about him? I think they need in that country someone who's strong, who's very powerful. I think they were beat up a, a bit when, when the Soviet Union broke up and they were thought of as a superpower and all of a sudden they're not thought of as a superpower anymore. And so, you know, I can meet an airport to this day asking someone about Gorbachev. Isn't it nice that you have a passport to travel now? Isn't it nice that you can go to the uh, church or temple or mosque of your choice? Isn't it nice that you have freedom of the press? Well, yeah, all oh, that's nice. Well, Mr. Gorbachev and his team brought all that in. Yeah, but we were a world power. It's always the yeah, but sort of thing. So I think what Putin has done has brought them back to a feeling of strength. I mean, his approval rating is, you know, um, uh, Bush would hope he'd have that approval rating. I think Obama today would hope he'd have that approval rating. Uh, but what I think is happening, and there are a lot of things that are wrong there. There are a lot of things that are wrong there, but, but I think what, what's happening is um, the world's a bit of a safer place now. I think that people are not talking down to them, but talking to them at a certain level. I mean, one of the things that the Russians really hated is 
where, you know, the Americans would say, do this, do this, do this, okay? I once talked to someone very happy in government. He said, what do you think about that, George? And it was just after Katrina. And so I said, well, maybe what you should do is call a press conference. And maybe you should say, uh, President Bush, I noticed you're having some trouble responding. Do you want me to send some Russian troops over with some housing to help you? Because that's what they were sort of doing with the Russians coming at them. So, you know, coming back the other side. I think the world's a bit of a safer place now. Yeah. But Yakovlev always said that don't hope for the breakup of the Soviet Union because once that happens, it'll put too much pressure on the United States of America. And that'll be a dangerous thing. And he probably was right. He probably was right. You're operating in this environment, though. I mean, it's been an amazing period. Um, and some would say that as long as Khodorkovsky is still in jail, Russia isn't exactly uh, a business-friendly place. Everyone knows Gazprom, Khodorkovsky. Well, I, I mean, if, if I, I don't know the facts of that case, other than I think what happened was Putin called in all of the oligarchs and said, I'm not going to question how you maybe got all your money, but I'm running the government. Leave me run the government. And so this one guy sort of decided to stray away from that. And I don't know if that's why I was put in jail, but you could look to this country and say, who's sitting in jails now? I don't want to mention any black and white names, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on here. <laughs> You are um, engaging, before we wrap up here, uh, in a new venture, I think with the commissioner. Um, but I, but no, I, not with the commissioner. He's not involved? Well, I used to be George Cohen. I'm now the father of the commissioner. It's great, isn't it? But in, you're, you're taking Cirque du Soleil yeah, to my, Russia. Yeah, my other son and I are. Oh, your other son, sorry. Craig. Poor Craig. Um, he's the commissioner of the Cirque. Right. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us about that. Why, why, why did you take Cirque well, to that's Russia? Re that's really interesting. I get a call a couple of years ago from a guy named Daniel Lamar, who is the... Um, the CEO of Cirque du Soleil. And he basically says, George, uh, Russia's one of the last big markets we're not in. We'd like to go in there. We have all these rich guys calling us, wanting to let us go in. Um, but we're not comfortable with them. You know the market better than anybody. Would you like to be involved with us? So I said, well, let me ask my son, Craig, who brought Coca-Cola to Russia after we were at McDonald's. Craig, do you want to get involved? He said, that sounds like fun, Dad. So we cut a joint venture partnership with them, and uh, we opened our first show October of last year in Moscow called Verikai. It's one of their traveling shows. And it was just, it was an incredible success. I mean, incredible. They said, Russia, we had to, to have it as a sellout, we had to sell 130,000 tickets. First thing I did before I got into the, the project was to get to the top brass at McDonald's and said, this is an opportunity. I hope there's no conflict. There is our stop. And they said, no, go for it, George. There's no conflict. Have some fun. And so we had to sell 130,000 tickets. They said, well, the Russians will never buy tickets online. They don't do that. They're afraid to put their credit cards out. So we took out ads that were billboards that were, oh, my God, the size of them is, you can have a big bus underneath and it looks like a little ant, these giant boards all across Moscow. We had sold 80,000 tickets before we even opened the doors. Okay, then you go to 90, 100, 110, 120. Now you're a sellout, 130. Well, what can we do to get more than a sellout? Have more shows. So can we run some double shows? Can we, on Thursday, have a show at 4 o'clock and another one at 8 o'clock? We ended up selling 160,000 tickets for the first time in the country. And they announced this year that Cirque du Soleil was the brand of the year, something McDonald's had been before. 
for the first time coming in. So now everyone says, well, you can't do business in Russia. You, you're never able to. It's dangerous. It's this, it's that. Those are people that are sitting around um, talking in rooms in, in cities where they never get on an airplane, go there and get the job done. So it's fun. I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't a great Canadian company, someone that I really trust and respect. And so this year we've got a show going to St. Petersburg, and there's someone in the audience who's from St. Petersburg. Uh, St. Petersburg, and then Kazan, which is a great city where Genghis Khan is from, and then back to Moscow. And then the year after we've got a plan for a major show, and then there'll be a permanent show like the Vegas shows. We've got to leave it there. I'm going to say, I'm going to do a formal thank you in a minute, but on behalf of everyone, I can't wait to see what you do next. George, well, That makes you. two of us. You get down and I'll say goodbye to you. I'm going to say goodbye. Just on a more formal note, I want to thank George for his time uh, and his... Uh, graciousness. And I think uh, it's pretty safe to say that he, is, he exemplifies the kind of people, person for whom success is not just about what they do in their business life uh, and the accomplishments they make or their bank account or the jobs they create. It may be all of those things. But for him, and I knew this uh, when I first met him, it's also about the kind of person you are, the kind of um, imprint you leave on the world, the kind of handshake you have, the way you look people in the eye. It's all of those things that make up a character and a and an individual, and I must say, um, I'm proud to be a fellow Canadian with this man. You can see on his lapel that he's uh, widely recognized. Uh, he's got the Order of Canada, more common these days. Less common is the Order of Ontario. Uh, very few people have that. Just to note, he has the Prime Minister's of Israel's medal. Uh, he's a highly decorated, recognized worldwide uh, individual. So where I think we can all be grateful to count him among us. Um, and again, on the philanthropic front, it's, it's an amazing achievement to create that kind of culture in a company this size and continue to sort of propagate that. So uh, I want to, again, ask you to join me in thanking him for his time and his insight, uh, and most of all for his, his many years of hard work and dedication to the service of his fellow men. Thanks, George. Thank you, Amanda, and thank you again, Mr. Kohan. And thanks once more to McDonald's Restaurants of Canada for making today uh, possible. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We are grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of the Canadian Club events. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you all, and have a good afternoon.